really getting away from clothing that has big branding on it. I am too. So I like how subtle that is. Yeah, I don't wear it as much anymore. Yeah. Um, I would like to go more incognito these days now that I have a school-aged kid because yeah. uh, if I wear too much Steel and Oak stuff, the conversation with other parents always goes to Steel and Oak. And then, which is good, but then I always get asked for something. <laughs> of course. Yeah, so, <laughs> so I generally just wear normal clothes. Of course, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of clothing, have you, do you travel much? Uh, have you I gone do. away recently? I have. Yeah, I was in London in May. Um, oh. Yeah, and uh, London, England, not London, Ontario. <laughs> and, uh, and then I'll be going away, um, I'll be going away quite a bit next year. Um, and this sounds like I live a lavish lifestyle, but I don't. But I'll be um, January or February, I'll be in Hawaii. April, I'm turning 40 and a bunch of us are going to Scottsdale. And then uh, May, I'll be in Palm Springs uh, with my wife's family. And then July, I just, uh, and you should do this. We put our house on home exchange. I don't know if you've heard of it. Yeah, yeah. And so we're exchanging with this family uh, from St. Jean de Luz, which is like on the Basque coast in France near the Spanish border. And so they're coming in to New West to stay in our house because they want to be close to Vancouver. And we're going to their vacation condo. And so we're going to France for a few weeks just on like this home exchange thing. It's wild. So like the two of them and their three daughters and then my wife and I are three kids and we're just switching houses. How do you connect with people on that? So just like a, a it's, chat? An, it's an app, yeah. yeah. And then you basically, what, what's cool about it is you can put in, so if you're like, I wanna go to uh, Greece, you can write that kind of in your profile. And, and what it does is if I want to, if I'm from Greece and I wanna go to Vancouver or Port Moody more specifically, but generally Vancouver, hmm. um, it'll like connect us almost. Like you can, you can be like, I wanna go to Greece during these dates. And it'll link you up with, oh, this guy wants to go to Vancouver. So it might be a good match. Hmm. And so it makes it a lot easier to find somebody that like, if no one wants to come to Vancouver, there's no point in being like, hey, can I stay at your place? Can I stay at your place? Can I stay at your place? Um, so it's easy that way. But on the other side of that too, they also have this thing. It's like a, their version of currency. It's called guest points. So like if you had a secondary home or somewhere else that you could live, somebody could come here, live here. Well, you weren't here, but you could be anywhere. And they would have to pay you a certain amount of guest points, which you could then utilize for um, somebody else's place rather than doing like a straight up exchange. So we're going to France. We're looking to go to to Paris for a few days. But in Paris, there's not a ton of people that really needed to go to Vancouver. Sure. And so like the place that we stay at, we'll use guest points to stay at and um, just stay at their place while they're not there. But they won't actually be home exchanging with us. So this whole new world for me. I might go there and it might be a total hoax. And I have no <laughs> idea. No, it's, it's pretty legit. So, And meanwhile, yeah. they're in your house. Yeah, so that's that a long answer. Yeah. But yes, I have traveled recently. Yeah. Man, that'd be weird. I don't know if I want people in my house. You, you gotta be a certain kind of person. Right? Especially if you're with drinking kids. beer with the beard and now it being on video. <laughs> you're so brewery now. I know. Yeah. <laughs> you look like a brewer. I do. You, I do. Even if you weren't wearing steel and oak clothes, I would. This is just because I'm tired, so I haven't shaved in a while. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, but like you're it. right. Like, you got to be comfortable with somebody being in your stuff. Yeah. And, like, you can't, like, we have too much stuff to, like, actually, like, put it all away. Like, people could root through our things if they wanted to. So, I don't know. You kind of just roll the dice, I guess. And 
I don't know. We could have a very different conversation at this time next year if it doesn't go <laughs> Never well. Never doing so we'll this see. again. Yeah. This yeah. is the biggest piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The reason I ask is because I'm going away on Friday and I started packing this afternoon just before you got here. And I am the probably the world's worst packer. I don't know if you have this problem. I do. I'm going away for a couple of weeks, so it is a little longer. But I, if I go away for five days, you would look at my suitcase and think I'm going away for three months. Yeah. I can't narrow down t-shirts. <laughs> I'm an overpacker too. I can't narrow down hats. I'm bringing like 10 hats, 15 t-shirts. <laughs> where are you going? Palm Springs. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. Where do you, where is your in-laws place? Uh, they, it's just a rent. They just rented it. Okay. It's in, um, I don't even know off the top of my head. Yeah. I want to say it's, it's, um, Palm Desert okay. area, but, um, but I'm not sure. Yeah. I love that place. It's my favorite place in the world. I know that about you because you <laughs> like to golf and, and all of that. And I love Palm Springs too. I, we were there, we had Lennox, which is our four-year-old. So but he was a baby. So it would have been like three or four years ago with okay. friends of ours. And it's wonderful. It's wonderful. It Good. rains like three days a year. Yeah. It's always hot. Even in late November when we're gone, it's like between 23 and 25 degrees every yeah. day, which is perfect. World-class golf courses. Yeah. And every time I go, I find like new restaurants to go back to. And there is a lot of good places to eat. Yeah. I love how chill it is. It's not a big, well, like Palm Springs is a pretty decent sized city with a, a, a very different vibe, but like outside of the city. Yeah. It's so chill. The palm trees are gorgeous. It is, like municipalities are kept so clean. Oh, yeah. You drive down the street and don't see anything. There's no, no homeless people. There's no like garbage anywhere. It is. Yeah. It's the best. We went out to Joshua Tree the last time I was down there. It's like which, an hour and a half drive. Yeah, it was a bit of a hike. Yeah. And uh, it was great. But um, but yeah, it was definitely worthwhile seeing. But it's, yeah, it's a bit of a hike. And then Joshua Tree, like the residential area around that is kind of wild. It's definitely different. It's mm. very like artistic and kind of like quirky, I guess I would say. Mm. But um, but yeah, I love, I love Palm Springs. I'm looking forward to it. So we're taking a couple days this year to go to LA, watch the Seahawks Rams game. Oh, cool. In that new stadium. In the new nice. stadium. I know. I've went to, uh, I was in New York, I don't know, six years ago, something like that. And that was the first time I've gone to a stadium that was outside of Seattle. Mm. And so it was really cool to see different stadiums and it kind of like got me fired up about yeah. doing more of them. Yeah. So I went to a, I went to a baseball game in the Yankee stadium and then I went yep. to a, I think it was Giants Chargers game. In cool. their stadium, which is like hilarious because it's not in the same state. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's like an hour and a half yeah, yeah. Uh, subway ride yeah. out to the Meadowlands. Yeah. And it is just literally in the middle of nowhere. It's like swamplands all the way around the stadium with a massive parking lot and the stadium. And that's it. Yeah. There's that. That's pretty wild. And But the tailgating there is is uh, next level. People get, I think it was a one o'clock game and people get there at like 8 a.m. and set up their barbecues and stuff. It's yeah. like, it's the definition the whole of week, weekend around it, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, that's wild. I've got a, so I've been to the new Yankee stadium. This was years ago before kids. I have a wild like Yankee stadium story where I went with um, a friend of mine. You, you probably might know Daryl Ogensky. Yeah. So Daryl uh, used to be a fairly popular DJ locally. And, um, and so he DJed down in Las Vegas every once in a while. And I guess he was at this, this Las Vegas thing. He met this guy and uh, his name was Scott. I don't remember his last name. And Scott, at that point in time, they met through a mutual friend. And he was the, like, uh, the season ticket sales manager for the Arizona Diamondbacks, the baseball team. Interesting, okay. 
fast forward a few years, him and Daryl keep in touch and he becomes the, um, the season ticket uh, manager or whatever they call it for the New York Yankees. And he moves to New York. And so Daryl and I and our wives, uh, Alyssa and Emily are going to New York. And so Daryl hits him up. He's like, hey, do you mind if, um, do you have any, could we get tickets, right? And, and he's like, yeah, for sure. You guys come down, meet me outside this gate. I'll meet you guys and we'll get you in. We're like, great. We didn't know what to expect. So the girls went off to, they went to the, the Met or some sort of art gallery. And Daryl and I went to the Yankees game. Anyways, um, so we meet this guy, Scott. He's suited up and he's like, okay, we're going to go in this elevator through this back gate here, okay? And, uh, and I'm going to take you guys up to your box. I'm like, what? <laughs> and uh, he's That's like, yeah, sweet. he's like, we got you hooked up. You're in the, um, the hospitality suite. He's like, it's where we put all the people that we're trying to wine and dine to get season tickets. I'm like, oh, okay. He's like, everything's on the house. So like, enjoy yourself. We're like, wow, this is incredible. So we go to get in the elevator and it's the same week as the Tony Awards. And Will Ferrell was playing George Bush at that time in, the, in that, <laughs> he had a, a play, a Broadway play, gets in the elevator with us. So it's Daryl and I, Scott, Will Ferrell, and some guy that's with him. And I can see Daryl like just fumbling with his phone. I'm like, be cool, man. Don't try Like, don't try and video this. Be cool. We just met this guy. And so, and they get off on, um, on the first floor because I guess SNL has a couple seats behind the home plate. And so he was sitting in those SNL seats. And then we kept going all the way up to this, this box. It was wild, right? It was a really, really cool experience. And then we left in like the sixth inning because we didn't really care about the baseball. Yeah. <laughs> but it was great. Did you say anything to him? Uh, no. Nothing. I feel like if I saw Will Ferrell... Nothing. Um, I, my mind would shut off and I would just blurt out one of his taglines from a movie. No. You my boy that. blue, you know, like something like that. <laughs> we were I was too busy trying to be cool to this Scott guy that I just met where I was like, I don't want to mess this up. This guy's taking us to like this hospitality suite. And so um, I was just trying to be cool. And then, so the Scott's in the hospitality suite with us and he's like, I got to go, I got to deal with something. And I guess he, he came back and he said that Kate Hudson was sitting in one of the rows and he had to get her like son or nephew or somebody a jersey. And so that's what he did. And he basically deals with the, or I think he's somewhere else now, but he deal, dealt with like the bottom six rows in Yankee Stadium. And he said some wild stat, you can fact check this because I'm going to misquote it. But he said some wild fact to me that like the bottom like 10, 15 rows of Yankee, Stadi like Yankee Stadium uh, makes more money than uh, any other ballpark, like for the whole, their whole ballpark. Um, I want to say he said combined, but that seems aggressively high to me. Um, but I, I don't know. You tell me, Carl. So that's going to be fun to find. Yeah, right? yeah that's going to be really <laughs> yeah. hard to find. Yeah, oh, man. I can imagine, man. Behind home plate in New York, what is that ticket going to sell for? Five grand every game? I would think so. Well, just because you have all the celebs and everybody coming too, right? There's always yeah. people in the front rows that are recognizable. Do you like baseball? No, not particularly. <laughs> okay, never mind. I mean, I don't. I don't dislike it. Yeah. Like. I like sports. So like if it's exciting, I'll watch it. Like I'll watch playoff baseball. Yeah. Um, and I don't now because I have kids. So it's hard for me to like have time to sit and watch anything these days. I watch football with them on Sundays. I've got them kind of trained into that and it allows me to keep my fantasy football habit going <laughs> so that my wife is okay with it because yeah. now the kids want to hang out with me and yeah. watch it. Um, but yeah, I don't watch a lot of baseball. No. Football is the thing I watch. How much time do you spend on fantasy? I have this conversation with Carl all the time because we do the Seahawks podcast. And so for me, it's like I watch a Seahawks game every week, yeah. but that's as much time as I can donate to the NFL. Yeah. And, you know, I'll have Monday Night Football on in the background and stuff like that. But 
Carl plays in fantasy and a lot of my friends are in fantasy and I tried it one year and there's like weeks that I just forget to set a lineup and yeah. I don't know who's injured and nor do I really want to spend yeah. the time to like research. And So if you have a desk job, you spend too much time on fantasy. <laughs> yeah. But if you have a job where you're dealing with other people, you're always around, out and about like, you know, you would be or yeah. I am now, yeah. like you don't have as much time. You just have to get more efficient at it. Yeah. But that efficiency only comes from being able to have done it for a while. So you know what you actually need to achieve. So like with fantasy now for me, when I had my old job before Steel and Oak, I used to spend way too much time on it. Because the guy that got me into fantasy football was my boss at that place. <laughs> and so we would be like just messaging each other back and forth about our fantasy teams. And, um, but now I'm in three leagues, which Holy sounds aggressive. Crap. I know. And um, they're all kind of different. And I spend Tuesday night, I'm quickly on the waiver wire to see if I need any help. I set those up. I'll if I got anybody going on Thursday night, I'll check in Thursday after work to make sure no one's injured. And then I'll check Sunday morning. And then, but then Sunday in all fairness, it does take the fun out of a lot of it because you're just kind of on your phone refreshing and yeah. looking and like it's, it's, it infuriates my wife. But on the flip side of that, I'm also, I'm a Cleveland Browns fan. So I don't have a ton to get excited about. That's um, right. I and, knew that. and so that's kind of what keeps me interested in, in, in football. So. Yeah, it's cool to have kids at the age now where they can like appreciate it and start understanding it and kind of get into it with you. For sure, yeah. yeah. The two things that we watch together, which I I enjoy, is, is football and and F one racing. But F one racing normally the races are early in the morning, like six a.m. six thirty. So it's perfect because I'll get up early, and they're already kind of getting up anyway. So it's kind of a nice thing. Yeah, until somebody crashes and you're like, oh shit, did they die? How'd you get into F one? Pandemic. Um, Interesting. Okay. Yeah. From I, the show, Netflix show? <laughs> yes. Yeah. That. So, what got me to watch that Netflix show happened before the pandemic. Um, I never was in, I'm not into going fast. I'm not a fast driver. I'm never that in that big of a rush. Um, I just leave early and arrive early. Um, I never understood car racing. I'm like, this is dumb. Why do people watch this? This is boring as hell. And then, friends of my parents, um, he, he was really into car racing and they have a place in a Soyuz and just Northeast of a Soyuz, there is a private racetrack called area 27. Mm. And it is like, it's basically a golf club, but for people who like to race cars and mm. it's like a proper racetrack and they built it. Um, it's got a clubhouse. You pay your membership fee and like rich people from all over uh, Alberta and BC, fly helicopters and shit in there and have like trailers with race cars that they just race there for fun. And so he's not on that level, but he's on a level to have a race car. And um, so we're up in a Soyuz, my wife and I, and he's like, do you want to go for, he's like, it's member, like a member's day. He's like, it's like, if you want to go for a ride, I can put you in this passenger seat and, um, and we'll go around the track. I'm like, sure. Like, I, I honestly did not care. Like that was like, it felt like a bigger deal to him. And then uh, he's like, don't wear flip-flops. And I'm like, okay. He's like, just wear proper running shoes. And so I'm sitting in the passenger seat of this car with this helmet on and just flying. <laughs> and like, at first I was terrified. And then I was like, he's a pretty good driver. And there's other cars on the track too. And, but every time you hit a uh, turn, you literally have to brace yourself and you can feel your stomach and your neck clenching because like just the G-force is trying to throw you. And like, and I remember it so clearly with going down this straightaway 
And then I look to my right and it's actually difficult to move your head because you're going so fast. And I kind of look over like this and there's a helicopter right down beside us. And then it lands because these rich dudes came in from Alberta to check out like, <laughs> and it was wild. And then I got out and I was like, this is amazing. I totally get it now. Like I totally understand. And then uh, the next, next spring was when COVID hit. And then I was just, you know, like everybody, I was just sitting home watching Netflix and that Drive Survive, the F1 race was on, the F1 show was on. And I would recommend watching it because the nice thing about F1 racing is there's only 10 teams and there's only 20 drivers. So it's super easy to keep track of what's actually happening. Yeah. And a lot of it has nothing to do with how good the drivers are, which sounds kind of weird, but how good the cars actually are. So like you could be the best technical driver in the world, but if your car is not fast enough, you're not winning. And the only way for your car to get better is to build a better team and to have more money. And it's just this like opulent sport of billionaires that we'll never understand or be a part of, <laughs> but to be able to look in on it is super, super interesting, right? And it's all these young guys, they all hang out, they're all friends because like, sure they compete every couple of weeks, but like they're all getting all this money, they're hanging out in Monaco, like they're living good lives, right? Yeah. And so it's kind of, it's super, super interesting. The other neat thing about it is it's kind of like a soap opera where the drivers change teams all the time, right? And the managers of those teams kind of hate each other sometimes. And so they're constantly swapping drivers. So around this time of year, we're getting to the end of, of F1 season. Um, all the drivers have, have got their teams for next year, but like you could be driving for McLaren and then halfway through your season, you're like, I'm gonna drive for Mercedes next year, but you still finish the rest of the season with McLaren. It's wild, right? It's, it's cool. I, I really like it. It's low commitment, hour and a half race yeah. on an early Sunday morning where I wouldn't really be doing much anyways other than having coffee and like trying to relax. Um, so it's good. Did you watch the show, Carl? No, I know I haven't it seen it. It was so good. So it's worth checking out? It was so good. Okay. It was, yeah, I was like obsessed with it when it came out and I, wa I would watch like three episodes a night. It was yeah. so good. Yeah, yeah. it's binge worthy. I didn't really get into actually watching the races, but it was cool to kind of follow the season in the way that they play it in the in the documentary yeah the thing i did not understand and i understand that drivers move around all the time and i guess it's really just to chase a better car so they can win do yeah. better yeah it seems uh like how how are the top two teams ever gonna lose because it just seems like their car is hilariously better than everyone else's car yeah i mean this car this year is this year has been different because what they did is they changed the rules for the cars this year uh, and like what you can do to them. Okay. And so it's made it a little bit more of an even playing field amongst the teams. Now, that being said, there is one team, Red Bull, that is significantly better than everybody else. And in all fairness, this year is a little bit boring because they just win the majority of the time. Not all the time, but the majority of the time. And, um, and then you have Mercedes and this year Ferrari. And Ferrari's car is actually pretty good this year too. So they're kind of battling for the second spot. So there's a little bit more parity, but the interesting thing about racing, which is counterintuitive to any other sport, is they get equally excited when a lower team comes in fourth, yeah. right? Like if they come in fourth, a lot of guys are like just fired up, right? Yeah. And so like if you're in a car like uh, a Williams car, which is like the bottom of the bunch, and for whatever reason you come in 10th, you still get a point, and, which comes with money, and they're like 
fired up. They are like fired up, like they could have won the race. It's wild from that point of view, right? So like guys come in sixth and if sixth better than what they think they should have come in, they're like equally excited about it, which kind of makes it interesting. Cause even if, even if, you know, Max Verstappen is so far ahead of everybody else, you're like, well, unless he gets a puncture on his tire, he's winning this race. Um, it gives you something else to pay attention to. You're like, well, there's a good battle between fourth and fifth and you at, you're actually excited about it, which is super wild. Yeah, it's weird that way. I guess, so what happened to Mercedes then? Because I thought Mercedes was like the best team for the last decade. And they were. And then this year, their car just isn't as good. Now, they've been making improvements. And so they actually won the last race. Um, so throughout the year, you can kind of do minor upgrades and changes to your car. And so their car is getting better. Um, so, but that was, I think, their first race they won this whole year. Really? So, yeah, huh. they were great last year. And then this year, they just had to take a step back with the car changes, I guess. Um, they just didn't do what they were supposed to do, which is part of the fun of it, right? Because now, now they're like, okay, we've got to invest all this money into this car and how can we make the car better? And, and it just so much comes down to the actual machinery and the team behind making that vehicle, right? Like, hmm. um, I mean, I think it'll be in the next little while, it'll always be Red Bull, Mercedes, Ferrari, maybe McLaren, because they've got the financial backing to be able to like throw into this stuff to make sure that they're, they're good cars. Right. Mm. So yeah, it's interesting. Something I never thought I'd be into. The NFL is, is so I've never seen a year that there's so many good teams losing to bad teams. Oh, I know. <laughs> seems like, uh, seems like every week. I, I don't know how people like are betting on, on the NFL right now. Not well. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Vegas is cleaning up for sure. Yeah. Yeah, like that Washington, Even the Washington the Philadelphia game. game. Buffalo lost twice in a row, right? Was it twice? They lost last week. Yeah. I think they lost to, who did they lose to? The Jets and then someone else? Yeah. The yeah. Viking. It's Parody, that's what they want, I guess. 100%. Right? It's, yeah. As a consumer, I've never been more into the league than this year. Yeah. It's so much fun to watch just because of how... Uh, how diverse it is, how every, how every week is yeah. totally different. One teams you thought like, I mean, like the Seahawks, like at the beginning of the year, you're like, ah, oh, this is going to be a dog shit year. And you know, at least they're going to get some draft picks. Right. But then they weren't right. And I think the interesting thing about this year, and, and maybe it's been the last couple of years and I just haven't been paying as much attention, but like there's definitely a significant drop in quarterback talent. Um, like, you know, from the haves and the have nots, but like it's coming from weird places. Mm -hmm. Like no one thought Geno Smith would be an actual good quarterback right now, right? And like, you know, it, it's, so it's just, it's been interesting to see that play out. Like last year, they were talking about cutting Tua and now like he's just a beast, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, you know, it's, so it's wild how that happens, yeah. right? You know? Even and, the step up that Hurts has made too yeah. in Philly. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Did they make the playoffs last year? No, because yeah. they struggled at the beginning. The first half of the season was a struggle for yeah. Philadelphia. And then he came in in the second half of the year, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he's mm -hmm. phenomenal. I know he's on my fantasy team, so I know that he is doing well. There you go. Yeah. Except last game, he lost it for me. But what are you going to do? Great draft pick because they have a pretty easy schedule. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. they're going to win a lot of games, even if like they lost this week, but they'll probably have 13 or 14 wins. Yeah. At least, right? No. Anyway, beer. We should talk about beer. Sure. Uh, man, there's so many things to talk about. Where do we even start? 252 breweries in I have BC? No idea. Is that what you said? There's definitely 200 Was that, something. Did you just make it up? <laughs> I, I feel like there's 200 and something yeah. rather. I feel also like we were brewery 35, but I don't know if that's true either. Were you that early? 35? It didn't feel like that early, but there was just such a huge influx after us. 
that like was insanity that yeah. like they were, you know, so I could be wrong. Maybe we're 52. Maybe there's only 200 breweries, but like. I see t- 2021, there's 185. So it's okay. probably up there. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, yeah, there's a lot of us now and it's definitely changed since the last time you and I talked and, yeah. and, um, but yeah, it's, it's wild out there. There's a lot of breweries. So, um, it's made it for like, I think definitely a challenging for, it's been a challenging few years for various reasons, you know, including pandemic. Um, but I actually think there's a lot of breweries in the next couple of years that are probably going to you know, they probably go under, right? Like, I just think there's so much now, which is great that you have choice. And it's great that local um, markets have their own, like, you know, basically their own local pub, right? Yeah. Like their own local brewery. Um, I think those ones will always survive, but you've got these like huge clumps of like, you know, in Vancouver and Port Moody, like there's just a bunch all together. And I don't know, I, it'll be interesting to see the next couple of years, but uh but yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of us now, but not a lot more are coming. There's not a lot of breweries I'm planning right at this moment, and it's also expensive to borrow money. So I can't imagine why it would uh, why people would start something as capital intensive as a brewery at this point in time. So it can't be as butterfly and rainbows as it sounds. Owning a brewery, running, no. starting a brewery, it's very. Uh, is it every guy's dream? I don't no. know. <laughs> as I say, on, right? as I say on my own my my own beer life podcast, which yeah. uh, I'll plug shamelessly. Um, like, no, it's it's an insanely difficult business to run, and it's because you have you have to be an expert at hospitality because you've got a taste room, you got to know how to run that. Um, you also run a manufacturing facility, so you have to understand how to deal with like WorkSafe regulations and um, and you know, heavy duty equipment and, you know, forklifts and uh, all your employees' health because they're lifting heavy things and they're in dangerous situa- situations, right? And it is a manufacturing job. Um, but then there's a creative aspect to it of like, okay, well, you got to develop all these recipes. You got to stay current. And then there is wholesale side. So you're selling to liquor stores. Um, and that's a whole other game. That's just like a straight sales game. Um, and then you're also selling to restaurants and pubs, which is a different type of salesperson that would do that because it's a different type of relationship. A liquor store, they only care if you pick our beer up off the shelf when you come in. They don't care if they like me or not. Totally. They just want, it, you know, it's more marketing than anything. Um, uh, but whereas for a restaurant or a pub, you might only have four or five taps, um, you know, at your place. And so it's a relationship thing because you know, it doesn't matter what you have. Somebody's like, well, I'm gonna have a beer. And, and so the relationship there is more important. And then on the other side of that, uh, and the real, real difficult part that I don't think people understand is uh, distribution and logistics. And that's where you lose your money or you, or you get it, is if you don't have like your distribution locked in where if I'm delivering this beer to Squamish, how much beer do I actually need to deliver to Squamish to make that delivery make sense so that we're profitable? That's where shit gets real confusing. Because on top of that, none of us are generally large enough to do that drive ourselves. It'd be easier if I could be like, I pay you this amount of hours. It takes this amount of time to get there. I know what the van lease costs. I know what gas costs to get you there. I can do that math. But a lot of us store beer at third-party warehouses that price based on how long the beer is at that warehouse. Mm-hmm. So I don't actually know if it's too hard for me to figure out how long this beer was at that warehouse do the math on that, what that costs me. And then, you know, and then reverse it from there, right? And plus, 
a lot of that price fluctuates on gas prices. Sure. So it's honestly, um, it is one of the most difficult businesses I think you could possibly run um, just because you have to literally run five different businesses. It's insanely hard. And um, yeah, it's not, it's definitely not. Um, sure, you can have a beer after work and that's great. And also it's awesome when you go to the taste room, you see all these people coming in. But I think when people think about beer and they're like, oh, that seems like such a rad, fun, low key job. They just see like the tasting room and people yeah. just drinking beers and like, yeah, and everybody's yeah. happy. And that is literally like 5% of my whole entire day. Totally. Is, is that, right? Yeah. Everything else is just, yeah. I mean, it's just like any business, right? It's like, you know, selling more beer, finding more efficiencies, dealing with suppliers and everything's getting more expensive. Yeah. And all your ingredients come from, some of it comes locally, some of it comes from overseas. So navigating that, you have to find these, you know, aluminum cans and where you can get those. So there's a lot, man. It's a, it's, it's, in, it's insane. Yeah, I, I would, um, you can do it in a simplified way where it's like your tasting room only type business and uh, then you only have to worry about hospitality, manufacturing, being creative. Um, but on the flip side of that, you get something like the p- pandemic would ha- happens and you don't have that other channel to be able to move product, right? Totally. And then you just own basically a super expensive pub, right? So, which- Is yeah. that even a profitable option? It is if you have um, a large amount of occupancy and that occupancy is generally full. So like mm. uh, we have a, a brewery that we're partners in called Herald Street in Victoria. And it has, I think 170 seats inside of it. Okay. And it doesn't distribute. It only sells beer in house. And if those 170 seats are full, yeah, it definitely makes profit. It's just, making sure those 170 seats are full. Mm-hmm. And then you're operating basically like a, a you know, a restaurant, really. Totally. Um, so yeah, there, you know, there are definitely ways to make that tasting room model only um, profitable. And I think a lot of people have that, that dream. Um, sure, the, the capital investment is pretty high at the beginning, but you're making your own liquid. So it's not like your, your, you know, your actual cost of, of, the, um, of the beer itself is fairly cheap. It's when you start to put it in a package is when right. it starts to get super expensive. <laughs> And so if you can eliminate that and just like sell it direct to the person in a glass off a tap directly from a tank and you're full, you're laughing. But during the pandemic, no one's full. And so you're, you're trying to figure out other ways to, to sell product and, and, and do that. So, so yeah, no, if somebody thinks it's gonna be their swan song, <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. Like there's easier and more fun ways, I think, to have like a cool, fun job with less headaches than opening a brewery, at, honestly, yeah. I would put opening a brewery probably at the very top of the headache list. <laughs> My background is in hospitality. <clears throat> yeah. My dad ran liquor stores and, yeah. um, and pubs in Greater Vancouver, and I worked in them for, I don't know, five or six years. So I understand that side of yeah. the hospitality world. And it was a lot of fun to work in them, but it was, like you said, so many headaches behind the scenes. For sure. Yeah. And we did not brew beer. We did not package beer. Yeah. We got all that stuff from other people. So it was a lot more simplified, but it was still, uh, it, it opened my eyes to like how different businesses can run and getting to see the numbers of a pub behind the scenes yeah. uh, was really helpful for me long-term to know that I did not want to be in right. that industry. Yeah, Just because of how, like there's so many variables in an industry like that. 
And <laughs> when your profit margin at the end of a month is like five to 8%. Yeah. And you look at like, well, that's not necessarily enough for if something bad happens, like COVID, yeah. <laughs> like anything, how many months does it take, take for you to go like negative very, very, very quickly? Right? Probably one or two for a lot of people, right? Totally. Like, yeah. yeah. I was really impressed with the craft beer industry, how quickly it pivoted. Yeah. It took, it took a lot of other industries a lot longer to figure out what to do. And it yeah. seemed like craft beer is like, boom, more cans. Here we go. Yeah, right? it, I think we, I mean, and like I, you know, I talk about how difficult the the beer industry is. And I'll say the one thing for a brewery that's set up like us, um, COVID was actually, uh, it had its own headaches um, and it was stressful and it sucked. Um, but from a sales point of view, um, it was probably our two best years we've ever had, right? Because people drank more and, but they drank more, but there was no requirement to go out and visit accounts or do anything because yeah. no one to see anybody. So they just bought beer and then other people bought beer from them and it was super simple. Right. And so it worked. You, you know, you, you didn't need as much staff. You, it, it, it was easy, right? Not then all of a sudden it became easy for a little bit, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's with, with beer, when COVID hit, one of the, I mean, one of the fortunate things that we had the ability to do is that we were able to sell, a lot of us operate like liquor stores, right? And liquor also became a, uh, what do they call it? It was a, um, there was those certain industries that were like necessary that they oh, couldn't yeah. close. Yeah, that's right. And Real alcohol was one, too, yeah. right? Like the liquor stores were one <laughs> of them, right? And that was like, and this is probably not a selling feature for beer, mm. but um, my understanding was is because um, there's a lot of people that are alcoholics that rely upon a liquor store to get them through the day when they were paranoid and worried that if those people couldn't get their fix, they'd end up in the hospital and the hospitals were already getting overrun with people. And so it was an easier way for them to like mitigate that. It's like, well, let's just keep, you know, basically let's give these people their drug, right? Which is mm. wild when you think of it that way. Um, so, I mean, the fact that we were able to stay open and produce beer was a benefit. And then they quickly changed the laws, which allowed us to like direct deliver to your home. Yeah. Um, and then the other unique thing about like a brewery, which I think is different than a pub here, maybe it's more like or akin to a pub in, in London or, you know, in, in Europe somewhere, but it's worth somebody's local. So like they feel passion for who we are and, and what we're about and they actually care about us. We're not just a, um, you know, one of their local restaurants or whatever that they pop into. So people are really good about supporting Right. And so like people would definitely support. I remember my neighbor lives down the street and he's really into beer. And like he came in and bought like a $250 gift card just because he knew he used it eventually and he knew mm -hmm. we could probably use the cash up front. And so like people did that. Right. And so I think that was one of that is one of the positives of beer is that like, you know, we have a cool spot that people rally around and they kind of treat it like their own. And that's unique to our industry. So it allowed us to kind of leverage that and people's goodwill and and just that they were worried that we weren't gonna be there when this thing was over because they really like the space and they were where their spot were like the extension of their living room now. And they didn't want to lose it. They didn't want to lose it, right? So I don't I like I can't think of a better community place than New uh, than Steel and Oak in New West. Yeah. For the brewery industry. Yeah. Like Port Moody has the row. Yeah. But not necessarily any allegiance or everyone's allegiance is different to yeah. a specific one. Vancouver, there's just so many. 
Yeah. Maybe like some smaller cities on the island or whatever that may be. They're like, there's just one so that people yeah, don't have the option. Yeah. But you guys, it seemed like did a phenomenal job of being a part of the community very quickly. And that was yeah. cool to see. Well, and I, I mean, I think like sometimes you're just, I don't want to call it luck. It's just the, um, the situation that you're in is fortunate. And for us, like, I mean, Jamie and I were like, I'm from New West. He was living there. Like, so it was easy for us to translate that into like what was actually a real thing. Right. And like people are too smart. They can smell phonies coming from a mile away. Right. And that's why, you know, a lot of times it's, it's, would be difficult if we opened a brewery somewhere else to kind of try and fake that energy that we actually like really care about the community that we're not actually a part of. But um, New West is quirky in that it's like a small city that kind of operates like a big city. <laughs> and, but people are really, really, really passionate about their city. Um, and uh, I think they, they always feel like New West doesn't get a fair shake. And so when things happen that they deem to be cool, they really latch on to it well. And Steel and Oak was that for them at that time. And I think it just really, really helped that Jamie and I were just local guys. I think it also helped too that like we were local guys starting families. Like we, we, now that I'm older, when I like look at it, like when you see a young entrepreneur starting out and they've got like a baby in tow and you're like, and they're just sweating it out. They're there <laughs> yeah. at the, in the morning, they're there helping close at night and like everybody's there helping. Like that's endearing, right? For you sure. want to support that, right? For sure. And, um, you know, there's a great bakery in Victoria called Working Culture. It's awesome. And they just had a baby. I don't know them, but I know they had a baby because of Instagram. And like, they're making bread with like the baby Bjorn on and stuff. And you're like, this is awesome. Like, I definitely want to spend money at this place, right? Like it's, it's, so I think we were just lucky with timing. New US needed something like that. And just the type of people that were living there at that point in time too, just resonated with, with what we were trying to achieve. One of the, as an outsider looking in, one of the things that I um, envy or really appreciate that Steel and Oak has done, yes, your beer is pretty good and you've been very creative pretty in the good? last couple Can of years. Can you fact check that? I'm pretty sure it's excellent. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. There's just so much beer now, right? Yeah. But no, no, no. I, I really like what Steel and Oak has done in the last couple of years with beer. It seems like you guys are very creative and trying new things all the time, which is cool. Every time I go in there, there's different beers to choose, which I really like. It kind of gets boring when you go into a brewery often or you live by a brewery and it's like the same five beers yeah, every year for five years. So I like the creativity. Uh, your branding is phenomenal and I think stands out in the industry. Thank you. The cool thing that I look at Seal and Oak and appreciate is the culture that you've built within the uh, the staff mm -hmm. and I think New West probably appreciates that too. Yes, yeah. it's cool that Steel and Oak is a New West brewery. Yes, it's cool that you and Jamie were New Westies. Um, but it seems like once you go in there, the the appreciation of what is happening there is solidified with how good the staff is too appreciate and the culture. That. Yeah, I mean we're like you know we're fortunate that we've got a really especially right now. I, it's definitely the best team that we've ever had and like. I think that's the one thing about beer is that it's it's easier for people to kind of buy into it and what you're doing because like when I've said this many times like beer is just kind of the catalyst that like gets people together mm -hmm. in that space mm -hmm. and I think once people realize that like what we're actually trying to achieve is to get people to like communicate with each other and get people to hang out and get people to meet and get people to like celebrate and 
and beer's just that like that thing where like we're having a conversation and it's like, well, let's have a beer. And it it it's it seems like the thing to do, yeah. right? Like, you know, when something sad happens, you're like, well, let's go and have a beer. Let's talk about it, right? So like it's kind of this unique thing that makes it super simple for people to understand and like and easy to rally around. And I also think too, like I I I think because uh we fully understand um the like the I don't want to say power because that's the wrong thing, but like the magnitude that our business has in our community. And like, that's a lot of, that's pressure in a good way. Like we have a lot to uphold and, and to stand up for because we are an important part of the fabric of our community. And so we participate a lot in things that aren't just beer related because we actually do care about mm -hmm. improving the city and improving our community and people and, and people's lives around us. And I think that rings true when, when staff come to work for us. And so that they, they know that it's not bullshit. Um, and so I think it's, it's, it's simple and easy for them to like rally around it and be like, yeah. And we also hire well, like we hire people that are like-minded that like fight the good fight that care about humans. And, um, and we also don't put up with any bullshit in the room. Like I tell our team all the time, like I, I care about you more than I care about our customers. Like, you know, and if somebody's a dick, like you just tell them to leave. It's your, it's your living room, not, not theirs. Right. So if you wouldn't let them talk to you that way in your house, then they don't need to be there. Right. And so empowering them to kind of create it, trade it as their own space too, I think is, is, is helpful. And, and we're just, we're fortunate that we just have good people and I'm glad it translates that well. And then that you feel that when you walk in that, that makes me happy because sure. when you sit on my side, you're not entirely sure you feel like it feels good, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's translated that way to, to outsiders that come in. For sure. Yeah. Do you spend a lot of time with the team, like building that? And then what does that look like? Yeah, I spend less now than I did before. Um, just more part and parcel because I have a young family and I just don't have as much time. Um, but I've been able to build up a pretty good leadership team mm -hmm. that have been with me for a while um, that understand what we're trying to do. And so it's definitely, um, uh, they're able to convey that to the team, um, which is a challenge always, right? Is when you try and, you know, teach your team to kind of like, feel the way you do forget like do the things you do it's, it's more like and this is how i feel about this right and so we're lucky we've got a couple actually a lot of the the people on our leadership team are people that have known me for years even before beer mm -hmm. and so i know that they understand um what we're about um just because i know who they are as humans and and so um you know there's also challenges with that too when you hire people that you're, <laughs> you're buddies friends. with or yeah. whatever, it's like, you know, anytime something doesn't go right, um, it makes it a little bit more difficult, but, um, you know, uh, they do a good job of translating that now. And I'm hoping to be able to get in there a little bit more. It's this weird thing where, you know, part of me would like to, to not necessarily get out of it altogether, but um, I need to be able to remove myself from most of it so that we can figure out what's next for us um, and how can we grow the business. Um, rather than me work inside of it. Uh, but at the same point in time, uh, I do feel a little bit lost. Uh, I've lost a little bit of touch with like a taste room team that some of them only work Friday, Saturdays. Well, I'm not going in the room Friday, Saturdays because the rest of my family's off school and things. So like, it's just not gonna happen. I've got one person that like we joke about, a uh, joke with <laughs> via our, like we use Basecamp to chat and uh, I've never met him. I'm like, I do exist, I promise. And then we were having a staff, our staff party. I'm like, I'm finally gonna get to meet you, Steve. 
And then I got super sick and I had to miss the staff party. So I haven't even met him. And he started working for us in August. And that sounds terrible, but it's just, that's just the nature of, of running that type of business that's open seven days a week, but, but especially in the taste room with very, no, not temporary staff. It's not the right way to, but, but people that work a day or two a week, right? Because, yeah. you know, for some of them, it's a second job, right? Yeah. You just, you have a two month old, three month? Yeah. So I have so. a seven year old, a four year old, and then I just, my wife and I just had a baby girl um, and she is, yeah, just over two months. Yeah. Yeah. So you, there's a bit of a pass there. Yeah, we're in the thick of it. Yeah, no, for sure. We're definitely in the thick of it right now. But uh, but things are starting to like calm down and we're getting a bit more of a routine. So uh, hopefully I'll have a little more time. For sure. Know? But there's only so much time to go around. Like, as you know, you can only watch the Seahawks. You know, time for the rest of the football and fantasy stuff, right? So, totally. Yeah. You talked about evolving the business and like what's next. And from an outsider perspective, it seems like a lot of breweries are starting to do or are doing seltzers and like even non-alcoholic beers I'm starting to see. What is like the next wave? Because I I think last time we spoke, hazies were just coming in or something like that. It was like sours were on the way out, hazies are just coming in. And it seems like every year or two, there's this evolution within the brewery world. For sure. What's on the horizon? Yeah, so I mean, right now, when you look at liquor sales, um, seltzers are definitely, and like we call them RTDs in the industry, ready to drink. They're, um, so that's like vodka sodas, yeah. nudes, neutrals, all that. They're definitely like took a huge chunk out of craft beer yeah, and out of cider. I mean, they were a beast. They actually took a chunk out of everybody. Mm. Um, and uh, um, non-alcoholic beverages are also like now becoming really, really popular. Um, yeah, the two main issues with both of those is that for a brewery of our size, they're actually really difficult to create. And I'll tell you, tell you why. We can make an RTD tomorrow. So for us to make a vodka soda beverage, I would just bring a neutral grain spirit, which is what most of those other folks do, put in a tank, put some flavoring in and package it. In fact, it would take me like, it would take us like two days. Like we could just pump, in a, pump it in and pump it out, right? Because you're not doing anything. You're just right. mixing things that already exist. Right. In British Columbia, uh, every liter of beer that I sell, uh, we get charged 40 cents a liter um, on that. It goes to the government. That's our markup. Uh, For uh, ready-to-drink beverages, it's net 72%. So you're paying, so whatever you charge, 72% of that Hmm. is going to the government. So 72 goes to the government. 72%. And it is, uh, my understanding, and we could fact check this, but it'd probably take some digging, is that it actually goes all the way back to like when Mike's Hard Lemonade was here. And they were trying to figure out with Mike's Hard Lemonade, whether, because it had so much sugar in it, what, like, they have issues, the LCRB, the Liquor Cannabis Regulation Branch, has issues when there's a lot of sugar in a beverage that's also alcoholic. Hmm. Um, So what it actually does is it makes it pretty cost prohibitive for a brewery of our size to make um, a seltzer or a ready to drink beverage. Now, the other issue with it is that in the province of British Columbia, um, I can direct distribute our beer, right? So like we make the beer, we put it on our truck, I deliver it to your, your pub, your liquor store, your house. With RTDs, so like vodka, sodas, any of that stuff, you're not allowed to do that. It has to go through the governments. The government has their own wholesale division, uh, which you can't necessarily get into. And it has to get distributed through that. 
So we would Mm. make the beverage and then I'd have to get a deal with the BC LDB, the BC liquor distribution branch, which is different than the liquor cannabis regulation branch. One's like the regulatory body that's like, don't sell to minors. And the other one is the one that actually takes like the money, they operate the, the liquor stores and all of that. So you send it to their warehouse and then they distribute it to liquor stores all over um, BC, including private liquor stores. Hmm. And um, so it, it's this weird, it's why when there was the liquor whole, the wholesale uh, BCL strike happened, and then all of a sudden you wouldn't see any vodka sodas on the shelves. <laughs> yeah, that's why. It's because, yes, yeah, because they, and we crushed it that month because we self-distribute. So all these liquor stores, like we can't get product because a lot of the bigger breweries um, and all the vodka soda people, they all distribute through the, L, through the LDB, um, which was on strike, but we all self-distribute. So they're like, well, we just need more product on shelf. We're like, well, here you go. Um, so that is why we don't do and an RTD, we could probably make one and do it in-house and just like sell it in the tasting room, but it'd still be 72%. So it's not a profitable business. Hmm. The only thing that makes it profitable is you do it on a large ass scale. Um, and it's also why you don't see a lot of, um, or any of these businesses, they don't have like brick and mortar, tat, they're a marketing company and they get a big brewery with extra space like like Molson or, or Central City. Um, they just contract it to them to, to do it. And then that way they can keep their overhead super low. Um, and they're just really more just a marketing sales play. Um, non-alcoholic is something I would like us to do. Um, and there are inroads right now with like cool, unique uh, yeast that helps um, to make non-alcoholic beer. But right now, um, the quickest and easiest way to make non-alcoholic beer is through, um, it's a dealkalizer, which is a super expensive piece of equipment um, that like a brew of our size would never be able to achieve. So it's why you see a lot of like um, non-alcoholic beverages coming from either bigger companies or their non-alcoholic breweries. That's all they do gotcha. because that's what they've invested in to begin with. Um, but a brewery like Central City that does Red Racer, they have their own uh, dealkalizer, I believe. And they've got a pretty big non-alcoholic uh, beverage program. And that's a whole other, you talk about the headaches of beer, uh, when you do non-alcoholic, you, where your bread and butter for sales channels are is is um, grocery stores. Yeah. And talk about a, a hard, like <laughs> selling something into a grocery store chain, like you're dealing with Jim Pattison or whoever, right? Like that is, that's that's tough business, right? That is that is tough, right? Selling to Costco. Um, so I'm with you. I, I, I actually have, like when my wife was pregnant, we'd have um, a non-alcoholic beer, she would have one and it always tastes like shit to be brutally honest. Like they haven't dialed it in yet. <laughs> but um, I super appreciate like, um, you know, it's tough because obviously we sell alcohol for a living, but I totally understand where the, where the world is going. And even like myself, I don't drink as much beer as I used to. Um, it's just, just changed how we operate, right? And we have more information. And so we've always, when we make craft beer, it's supposed to be like a treat. Like that's what you look forward to. It's like, it's your event, right? You're going there. Um, you know, if you're mass consuming alcohol, it's too expensive to do it with our stuff, Sure. you know? And um, so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting changing world. And, but you're, you're bang on like non-alcoholic and, and seltzers are kind of like doing that. Um, and craft beer is like doing that. Right. And, uh, it's just there's only so much piece of the pie to go around. We only have so many liquor stores that we're able to sell to. Yeah. 
And so it's just bound to happen. So, yeah. What is a de-alcoholizer? Yeah. What does that cost? I don't know. Carl, can you look that up? <clears throat> and what does it do? It so you make beer like normal yeah, and then yeah. you run it through this machine? Yeah, thing? and then it like strips away the, um, the alcohol from it, I believe. Where does it go? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it gets recirculated back into to, to vodka sodas or something. I don't know. I don't know enough about it. You should so get there's it. actually like a runoff? I have no idea. Oh. Yeah. I'd love to lie that to you your put audience. put it into but, a vodka soda? That'd be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that people like about, um, like, so bigger breweries like Parallel 49, they, they do um, RTDs. They do the Muddler's brand. And mm-hmm. um, they're large enough that it makes sense for them to do it. They already have the distribution networks. And, and But what they like about it is that it can be an endless loop. So you can... Because all you're doing is really carbonating water and add, adding alcohol to it, right. um, there's like no downtime with that, right? Like you can carbonate in line, into package, and then just like keep the, the cycle going. And so like it's super efficient. You can make, it's a volume game where like you could, if you can make a lot of it and a lot of people buy it, uh, you can definitely make money at it, but it's definitely like a volume um, volume game. So, and there's obviously, it's it's also game without a lot of um brand allegiance right totally. like you know what i mean like you know you buy steel and oak because you're like i like steel and oak i like those guys i know what they're about and whereas like in that industry you, you don't really have that right you're like wow white crossing is cool i'll try one of those well nudes on sale so i'll have one of those and because they all kind of taste the same also there's doesn't seem like there's any skill there isn't it's just blending something and yeah. they don't even blend it they could just contract somebody else to blend it um, and there are, I'm not gonna, I don't want to go down that road, <laughs> but there are a few, um, you know, distilleries, which don't have distillery in their name, but, but spots locally that are small that from the outsider's point of view, seem like they're making their own alcohol, but really all they're doing is just buying neutral grain spirit and just blending it. And it's a super cheap way, uh, to make it seem like you're, you're like, you're actually creating something cool, mm-hmm. but you're not. Um, they have, t- they're allowed to have tasting rooms. They can do all of that stuff. They still have to pay the insane markup. So it's still an expensive, um, you know, it's still a, a narrow profit business from that point of view, but, um, they can kind of fake it. Yeah. So explain this to me. If you sell a six pack for $10 for easy numbers, $7 and 20 cents gets taken away. Bingo. What the, how is that legal? That seems like so much. That's crazy. Yeah. What's the markup on beer? It's uh, 40 cents a liter. So 40%? That's 40, well, no, 40 cents a liter. Oh, so it's not. Oh, sorry, yeah. So sorry, we can sorry. charge whatever yeah. we want and our markup doesn't fluctuate. Gotcha. Okay. Right. So if I sell, sold you a beer for, if you, I sold you a liter beer for a dollar, the government would take 40 cents. Gotcha. But if okay. I sold it to you for $10, the government still only take 40 cents. Okay. Yeah. Man, 72%. Yeah. 72%. Yeah, 72. That has to change. That seems ridiculous. I think probably. Um, you know, it, it does seem ridiculous to me. And I, I, like I said, I don't really know because like a, a neuter neutral, it's only 5% in alcohol. Like I could understand if it was like 20% alcohol, right. And they're taxing because there's so much alcohol in there, which they do do. Um, but like for that, it doesn't, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it seems like a lot. Now on the flip side of that, most of those guys um, outside of like maybe a parallel 49 or some of the bigger breweries that have used it as a secondary um, revenue stream. Mm-hmm. There's no, like you could have, and you could have a vodka soda beverage like 
in a couple months, right? You, and with no, with no capital outlay, like you could just do it, right? You're just like, all right, I'm Denny Duma. I've got my own Denny's, Denny's brew. Um, and you just call up one of the bigger players, like a central city or whatever. You're like, I want to make, um, an RTD, uh, called Denny's brew. Um, uh, this is my label design. And they're like, okay, we'll do that for you. And it's going to cost you this much per liter, but we will make it package it and label it for you. And we will even distribute it for you. Um, so all you have to worry about is is selling it for a high enough price that you can make some money off of it once they do all their work, right? Yeah. But you're not really out anything. If it flops, all you're out is the cost of that one batch that you did. Um, so you don't have to, you don't have to take a risk, right? And so I think, you know, uh, you know, when I look at it from that, that point of view, like the amount of risk that we had to take to open Steel and Oak was, is huge. And the amount of risk people have to take now to open a brewery is even, is even bigger. Totally. And, um, and so I think we deserve a break. Um, but that being said, as all of us now navigate what, you know, what is flattening of craft beer and we look at other avenues and what people are into, um, it's, it becomes challenging from that point of view. So I don't know if they look at it in a way where it's like, okay, if you have a brick and mortar location um, and, you know, and you want to make RTDs, maybe your percentage is this. But if you are contracting out to somebody else, it's that. I'm not sure, but I don't think it's high on the priority list for them right now. Fair enough. Yeah. Do you find out what that machine costs? Dude, there's so many different types. The whole concept is that it burns off the ethanol from okay. the beer. Yeah. Yeah. But the problem is that it changes the flavor of beer too much. So it's a whole system to try and keep the flavor. Yeah. It's insane. The yeah. amount of work that goes into it. But there are some like super smart folks that are making like yeast that like, I guess, removes the alcohol from it. Actually, before like just randomly it came up into my Instagram feed, there was an article uh, on the US, in the US uh, based article talking about the issues with non-alcoholic beer because there's no real regulatory um, body. Yeah. But the issue with it is, is when you strip away alcohol, um, you strip away the pres natural preservative that keeps it shelf stable, right? And so it'd be like having pineapple juice on the shelf, but with no, um, like with no stabilizer in it, right? And so- it's not regulated in that way. So like if you remove alcohol from something, it's going to go bad. Yeah. And so you need to drink it fresh. And so there's issues with that right now in the US where people are trying to make these non-alcoholic beers, but in creative ways, um, but they're not pasteurizing them or they're not, you know, adding some sort of stabilizer before they send it out. And then, you know, if it sits on a warm shelf or whatever for a while, people get sick, right? And um, so, yeah, it's definitely like anytime something evolves that quickly, there's always issues with it. It's a whole other ball game, right? And it's super specialized, but it's like gluten-free beer, right? Like there's certain breweries that only make gluten-free beer. And there's reasons for that. It's because like you can't have, we couldn't technically make gluten-free beer because our facility also produces beer with gluten in it. Sure. So in theory, you know, um, you know, it's, we, we, we basically, you know, crack malt up really fine, but like it could float into something, right? So yeah, hmm. but now, you know, Sweet. So that's crazy. why you will not see a non-alcoholic or uh, RTD drink from Steel and Oak anytime soon. That's Fair yeah, enough. just because we thought about it for sure. Thought I, about it for sure. I was talking to a guy that works with a brewery in Calgary, I think. Toolshed. Oh yeah, yeah, I've been there. Yeah, and uh, he was he was talking about them 
I think they now have a seltzer, RTD, B, whatever it's called. Yeah, RTD, RTD, yeah, ready to drink. drink. Okay, ready to drink, there you go. Uh, And he he said they're currently working on a non-alcoholic. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. Now, I don't know what um, Alberta's liquor laws are like as far as like how markups work there. Um, So there could be something there that makes it way more attractive. Um, And like I said, like Toolshed's a pretty they're a big brewer, like they're big. Yeah. Um, they're not like parallel 49 big, but they're bigger than Steel and Oak. Um, and they do have a lot of space. Mm-hmm. So when I was like there, they've got a lot of space. And so I could see if they were like, we think this non-alcoholic thing is going to really take off. We want to invest in this massive piece of equipment because we think that this is the future. For sure. For sure. For us, we just have nowhere to put it. Sure. Yeah. The previous question that I asked you about, that probably matters so much about location just in terms of like how much space you can get to be able to potentially do these other adventures yeah, and how much it's costing you, right? For sure. And I think it's, it's, that also is a difficult situation in itself because if you want to get a lot of space so that you can make these other beverages, generally that space is in light industrial, which is far away from people. Totally. But if you want to have that tasting room model where, you know, you got the 170 seats or whatever, and people are filling your space where you're making high margin, um, you need to be close to residential. And generally there, your leases rates are way higher and the spaces aren't as big. Yeah. And so it's kind of like, you know, I guess in an ideal scenario, uh, you would have a small brewery and tasting room, you know, in downtown somewhere. And then maybe you'd have a manufacturing facility, you know, in the sticks, right? The, right. For, but then all of a sudden now you got two leases that you're paying. Like it's, it's you know, I think- going back to your question before of like, you know, what, what is the future of, of kind of craft beer? I actually think the future of it is opening up satellite tasting tap rooms. Um, and you know, we have the ability, we don't necessarily have the ability yet. And I think they might try and change this. So if I open a satellite, uh, tap room, so let's say we open steel and Oak Vancouver mm-hmm. on main street. Um, we, uh, wouldn't be able to, uh, at this moment in time, be able to sell steel and oak beer to go from there. Gotcha. Okay. Um, right now there's rules where you you can only sell packaged product at the facility that you make it at. They have to be attached. Okay. Um, but I could sell steel and oak draft to myself and then resell it to you. And so Trading Post has done that. They've got a pretty good model where they have like their Trading Post brewery in Langley and their taste room's not necessarily bumping, but they have two huge satellite restaurants. And so they're able to basically eliminate dealing with any sorts of restaurants or pubs because their two biggest clients are themselves. And so they're selling beer to themselves and then reselling that beer to what are actually two very high traffic locations for them. Right. And um, so that model works. That makes sense. Now, obviously, now you're running a restaurant, you're doing all these, you know, your life is getting more complicated <laughs> for sure. For sure. Um, but you do remove the challenge of trying to sell more wholesale products somewhere, right? And so if you think the future is, yes, people are always still going to want hospitality. They're still going to want to go out and have a beer somewhere and some food. Um, but maybe they don't go to liquor stores often. Um, then that might be the route to go. Like, I think that is where we would look next is, is you know, where is a satellite space that we would feel really good about that we could help move beer through? Would you do food? Hundred percent, yes. Yeah, man, food, 
adds so many complexities. It does add so many complexities. The quality control on a restaurant versus, I mean, like I've never run a brewery or, or worked in a brewery, so I don't know, but I would assume from bartending, pouring beer is a lot easier than like producing yeah. the exact same looking dish that tastes the same, that is cooked properly every, every time. single time, right? Yeah, but I will tell you that like we, um, we have a very, very simplified food program at Steel and Oak now, but it is good. Mm-hmm. And when we brought in these like, they're like glorified pizza pockets, basically, these party pops, they're like these 10 inch like calzones almost, but like not as like dense. Like beer sales go up. Like our food sales have gone through the roof, right? Like people want to eat something when they have something sure. to drink. And um, and so I think we would definitely have food. I think it would definitely be a simplified food menu. I don't know if we do like table service. I think the hospitality industry is in is going through a bit of a rude awakening with like people not really wanting to be in it. And so, well, if you can't get people to, you know, serve tables, a couple of things either have to change. Uh, you either have to treat them better and pay them more. Um, in, and then customers have to be okay with paying more, um, which is probably what everybody should do. Um, or you have to change the model to to like more of like a quick serve counter service, right? Which is what breweries traditionally operate as, right? right. You come up to the bar to order. And I mean, it's what most pubs in, you know, in England do, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's more of a, it's less formal, more casual. Um, and I think it would just take the market uh, to get its mind wrapped around that you can have just as good food uh, if you have to get up to order it from the counter than you could if somebody brought it to your, to your table or if somebody, or, you know, you've ordered it from the table. Sure. And so, um, but I don't know if society's there yet, but I think they're going to have to be if people want to be able to go out multiple times a week, um, you know, they're going to have to be okay with having some sort of more casual service because, you know, any, any spot that has service staff right now, prices are, are up. And I mean, that's not even service staff. That's just cost of ingredients. So like your local pub, I mean, you're probably not getting out of there. If you had a burger and a beer at your local pub, it's still going to probably cost you well, 32 bucks right before tip. You know, that's for one beer. You have two, you're in there for 42, right? And then, you know, you go out with your friend and like it's $100, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, 84, but, you know, plus tip. So like, you know, for like probably a mediocre burger and two, you know, two beers, right? So we're just gonna have to be okay with that as a society that like when we go out for dinner, it's more of a treat than it was before. Right. Um, but saying that out loud, that is also one of craft beer's benefits is that, we have tasting rooms where we actually manufacture the beer behind us. So I have the ability to sell beer cheaper yeah. than, than, you know, my pub that I sell it to. Um, and so if we can bring in a simplified food program that is also reasonably priced and you're okay with casual counter service, you should be able to come to Steel and Oak and have just as good, if not a better experience with fresher beer for a lot cheaper. And I still make good money off of it, right? And that, everybody's winning. So I don't know. That's what we're trying to do. So we'll, we'll see if it works. But yes, I definitely do food. But no, I don't want to run a kitchen. <laughs> so, so I'd have to get somebody else to deal with that because I that is not in my world at all. At all. Steel and Oak allowed me to fumble through figuring out how to run a yeah. hospitality company. Yeah. But I just, I don't think I am. There's been opportunities over the last couple of years for, for me to take over, like to, to purchase restaurants. Um, and I just can't wrap my head around the amount of time that it would, that it would take. And like you said, the margin's so slim. It's, it's just so such tough. a volatile business, right? 
It's it's tough, especially in Vancouver. It's a fickle market, right? People people like different things all the time. It's 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 fickle for sure. I saw some guy talk about uh, when I was working at the pubs talking about the margin on food. So thinking about a burger that cost this is back in the day. This is like eight or nine years ago. A burger costs fifteen or eighteen dollars. You're paying your lease, your your food mm-hmm. cost, your uh, em- employees. At the end of that burger, the business is making a dollar. Yeah. Server drops a plate, boom, yeah, it's over. Now you're negative four bucks, right? Because the plate yeah. costs five dollars or whatever, right? Yeah. So these are things that consumers don't really think about. Like there's so much breakage. Yeah. Just cups and cups chip and like things like that, and all that stuff costs a lot of money for the business. For sure, our taste room uh, manager Shelly. Um, and I don't know if it was like this when you worked at that pubs, but like um, back in the day, and, and Shelly's a little bit older than than us, um, but she's been in the the hospitality industry for forever. Mm-hmm. Um, they used to if they used to take breakage out of their their wages. Whoa! Yeah, cold, right? Yeah, yeah. Can't see that being legal. <laughs> I don't know if it is actually, <laughs> but I think back then that it, it, you know that's how it all worked, right? Yeah. But um, but yeah, breakage is expensive, right? Like. Every one of those steel note glasses that we have in the taste room are like, once we get them landed, they're, you know, they're four to six dollars, yeah. right? And so, yeah, you drop one, then, then that's the, the price of that beer that was in it, right? Plus, yeah. if the beer's in it, you know, then, yeah, anyway, so, yeah, it's expensive. Yeah. Exactly. So, don't mm-hmm. mind, pay, pay for good food, tip people well, and, uh, and be okay with it, as long as the service is good, right? But, yeah, people are just going to have to get used to it. I'd say don't underestimate yourself with the kitchen thing. Yeah. Because you, DNA, or in your DNA was not beer, right? No. <clears throat> You've never done anything with beer. No. And it seems like you're doing a pretty good job of that. Oh, thank you. I try so, and fumble my, fumble my way through it. So, yeah. so maybe, maybe the next Steel and Oak satellite place is maybe when those Michelin people come back for the stars. Wouldn't that be nice, eh? There you go. Yeah. A Michelin star brewery. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, we'll see. I don't know. We'll, we'll see what's next. The, what I what I really excited what I like right now and I don't know if if uh, okay I gotta talk about I gotta plug this place that you gotta go to okay you gotta go to um, and uh, it's called Katokian and Katokian is on Bone Island okay and it's run by like the loveliest people and it is three um, like Japanese style little small one bedroom in kind of uh, cottages but saying cottage does doesn't do it justice these things are beautiful the like the sheets are like like handmade with like japanese like (laughs) it's like nothing has i've never been to a place and i've been fortunate enough to stay in some nice hotels but i've never been to a place that is as well thought out as these three units on bowen island and it's run by uh a couple rob and mitsumi and they used to own a restaurant in tofino called kumo and now they live on bowen um, and I think they've, they've got a, a daughter and so they live above these three units and they, they own her, they own and operate it, but basically it's a Japanese bathhouse. And so you book one of these rooms and there's two other, you know, guests in the other two, but you can't see each other. Yeah. So just the way they're staggered, you've got like ultimate privacy and then they have like a Japanese bathhouse, which is basically like this massive, like stainless steel, hot tub, cold shower. And then like this warm fire that you stoke this fire and you kind of sit outside this beautiful Japanese garden. It's gorgeous. It's, it's not cheap and you can't get in. So <laughs> what you have to do is uh, they're like booked through to like 2024. It's wild. 
And uh, so you have to get on their uh, cancellation list. And then you get a newsletter or email saying, hey, we've got some cancellations for these dates. The tickets will go live at 9 a.m. Or the, the you know, scroll line. You're basically like hitting refresh, like you're buying Taylor Swift tickets. It's fucking wild. And uh, so Alyssa and I got in and we went uh, and it was, it was incredible. And ever since that experience, I've been obsessed with um, that kind of concept. Like how, um, you know, it's like, it's luxury travel, but it feels authentic. And I'm confident they rely solely upon like locals. Like people live in Vancouver, it's yeah. close, right? So like, how could you not necessarily steal that idea? Um, but like, you know, doing bed and breakfast and that kind of stuff is not new or Airbnb or anything mm-hmm. like that. But like just the level that they've done it, it's like this this beautiful mix between like a hotel experience, but something super authentic and they can charge whatever they want for it. Um, and so that's what I've like, forget beer, but but in my mind, I'm like, ah, oh, I would love to be able to do like, a, you know, I'm Norwegian heritage. I'd love to do like some sort of Nordic aspect on like a lake somewhere where like, you know, you come up, there's there's four or five units and like you jump in the freezing cool lake, do a cold swim and there's like a sauna there, right? Like just like the the Finnish Nordic experience. And um, and that's what I, I, I'd love to, to do that. And then if you wanted to even take it to a next level, on site, you could have like a super, if it was close enough to, you know, a, a large enough um, city, uh, you know, far enough away that it feels quiet, but close enough that people would come out, you could do like a really, really nice restaurant. It's a great restaurant on, I think it's Gabriola. Um, and it kind of operates that way, right? And so I feel like there's, there's something there for like that local luxury travel, mm-hmm. especially with only like three or five units. Like you're, if you do a good enough job, you're gonna sell those out. That has nothing to do with beer. You'd get beer there, though. They'd have beer for sure. Beer would be there. Beer would be there. It's like the Scandinavian spa with accommodation. Yes, correct. Yeah, just like that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty pretty awesome. So I've been obsessed with that over the last six months. That's all I've been thinking about. Um, but it's difficult because you got to find a location that's near enough. Like the nice thing about being on mm-hmm. Bowen is it's like, it's 45 minutes from Vancouver. It's a yeah. quick, easy ferry ride, right? And so you're there. And so you can get locals to go. So you're like, okay, you draw a circle around Vancouver and, and where are those locations? And sure, most people would be like, yeah, I'd let, you know, put it on Savory Island or something cool like that. But a lot of those islands won't have zoning to be able to do what that is required, right? And um, so, yeah, it, anyways, once the kids get a little older, maybe that's the, maybe that's where I'll put my time and energy. Yeah. I don't know if it's part of just getting older, so maybe this is just normal, but, or is it just the way that the world is going right now or society is going? But I feel like myself, specifically in the last few years, very much appreciating quality. Oh, yeah. So whether that be like, I, I was telling Carl when he went to the washroom earlier, that one of my friends came over, I don't know, a few weeks ago and brought like a six pack of Bud Light. Yeah. <laughs> and he left four of them here and they're still here. Yeah. Like I'm, not, I'm just never going to drink them. No. I'm only going to live on this earth for how many years? 90 yeah. years or whatever. I would rather drink, you know, something that tastes good, right? Yeah, I think it's about like it's 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 about consuming less. Mm-hmm. But when you do, do something that lasts a, lasts a long time, yeah. right? It's like, I mean, you talk about clothes. We talked about clothing earlier. Like, fashion industry is is a great example of this. It's a terrible industry, right? There's so much wastage. It's awful. Mm-hmm. But like, um, if you buy a good pair of jeans and the cut is something that might like last a long period of time, like you can have jeans forever, yeah. right? And get them patched, get them fixed. Um, there's things now that I've been reading about like in jeans libraries where it's like, 
So you don't actually own your genes, you rent them from the gene library. And so like you would go to the gene library and just like a regular library, you take a pair of genes out and you rent them for like, you know, a couple of weeks and then you take them back, they clean them and then somebody else rents them, right? So it's like this concept of like, it's like Evo for like as a vehicle, you don't actually own anything. You're just like, cause you don't need it all the time, right? Um, so yeah, I think it's it's consuming less, but when we do, make sure that it's it's nice, right? And that it's thoughtful and that like you actually know where it comes from and like who's making it and where, like what what hands does it touch, yeah. right? And uh, and that's difficult to achieve, but um, I think it's really important for um, what I've been reading because I'm old and so I'm trying to figure out like what does Gen Z want, but like it's important <laughs> to them. The Gen Z doesn't mean money, so like it's, they don't entirely match up yet, but they will. Totally. They'll be the, I, actually, you know what? I shouldn't say that. I think they're, I maybe individually they don't have a lot of money, but I think as a collective, they have like the second largest buying power um, of any generation. And they care about the story and where things come from and, and how they're made and the quality that they are and the story behind them. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Buy less, but buy quality. Who's got time, right? Mm-hmm. Also, I'm getting older, so I don't have time to put <laughs> bud calories in my body I when I can have backcountry <laughs> calories instead. Yeah. So like, I'd much rather do that. I like, I hopped on the Peloton before I came here because I'm like, I know I'm gonna have a beer with Danny. Yeah. I'm going out for dinner tonight with some friends. I'll yeah. probably have another beer. So like, you just have to be, you pick and choose a little bit more, right? I'm the guy that's killing my own industry, but just, you know, paying more attention. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, well, I'll let you get out of here. Thank you very much for no, coming man. back. Yeah, it was really good to uh, hang out. You know me, I'll shoot the shit for as ever, however long you want, anytime. So. Love it. We'll do yeah. it again very soon. Cool. Thanks, Thanks buddy. Call.